Testing one, two, three. Am I making this pop? Is it suspiciously poppy, popular in here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's poppy enough. Wonderful. Yeah. If that sounds good, then we can get cracking. Are you recording? Should we go? Yeah, go. We're recording. It's urology. It's not rocket science. It's not even brain surgery. I can't believe the radiologist missed that. It stood out like dogs. You've got to have a sense of humour when you look at genitals, really. Bend over and assume the position. Bladder, most beautiful organ in the body. Talking urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk. A podcast series supported by Ipsen. I'm Joseph Iskia. And I'm Nathan Lorenchuk. And we're Talking Urology, where we look at the key papers that guide our urological practice every day. We talk to the authors of these papers and get their insights and added some much-needed flavour to the discussion. Today we're talking chartered, but we have some great papers coming up. We're chatting to Hein van Poppel about his outcomes after partial versus radical nephrectomy. We're going to talk to Francesco Montorzi on his landmark paper of penile rehab with Tadalafil following radical prostatectomy. And Victor Nitti talking onobotulinum toxin A in overactive bladders. Neil Fleschner discussing Redeem. And Stephen Borgian is going to have a chat to us about monitoring of the small renal mass. Thanks, Joseph. Today's uh, paper that we'll be discussing for the podcast will be chemohormonal therapy in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in August 2015. Of course, it's best known by its shortened name, Chartered, or the Chartered Trial, which stands for the Chemohormonal Therapy versus Androgen Ablation Randomised Trial for Extensive Disease in Prostate Cancer. In fact, it's quite interesting. Do you know that the word chartered does not appear once in the paper? The first author is Chris Sweeney. It is a fantastic paper with unprecedented improvement in overall survival and significant change in uro-oncological practice. We had a fantastic chat with Australia's very own Chris Sweeney. I'm Christopher Sweeney from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, a medical oncologist in Boston. This study was designed just after the TAX-327 trial came out. And of course, that was the docetaxel in castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Therefore, why move it forward to cancers that will respond to androgen deprivation therapy? We asked Chris why this study was even done. Men with metastatic prostate cancer have been treated with hormonal therapy and we know it's going to last a variable amount of time. And especially those who have a higher burden of disease have a poorer outcome. And we thought we need to do better. And we've got another active agent in a more advanced disease setting, castration-resistant prostate cancer, docetax. And we said, well, if we can use two drugs that are active, have uh, single agents and have non-overlapping toxicity, and attack the AR negative clones that may be present and the AR positive clones, we may be able to do better than just doing it sequentially. So we said, chemo hormonal therapy up front versus hormones alone, let's see how we go. So the primary hypothesis of the trial was that the median overall survival would be 33.3% longer in the docetaxel up front arm compared to the ADT alone arm for metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. The inclusion criteria were that the patients had to have radiologic evidence of metastatic prostate cancer. They had to have an ECOG performance status of 0, 1 or 2 and prior adjuvant ADT was allowed if the duration of therapy was 24 months or less and progression had occurred more than 12 months after completion of therapy. I think this really just covered patients that had had a short duration of adjuvant ADT associated with radiation treatment. The design of the study was that patients would be randomised to ADT alone or to combination therapy with upfront docetaxel six cycles combined with ADT. 
daily prednisone was not required, and this is one important difference from the Stampede trial. Intermittent hormonal therapy was not allowed, and this was really quite an astute decision considering the fact that in M1 disease, it does appear that continuous therapy is better than intermittent therapy. The primary outcome of the trial was to assess overall survival and prostate cancer-specific survival. Secondary outcomes included disease progression, PSA responses, time to castration-resistant prostate cancer, and the toxicity associated with treatment. The trial was formulated back in 2005 and enrolled 790 patients from 2006 to 2012. This study reports on data censored at December 23, 2013, when we had final outcomes on 53% of the enrolled patients. Median follow-up at that stage was 29 months. There had been 136 deaths in the ADT alone group and 101 deaths in the combination group. Overall, the groups were well-matched. Median age, around 63-64 years. 85% of the patients were white. Around two-thirds had ECOG performance status score of zero. Two-thirds had high-volume disease. Two-thirds had a Gleason score of eight or higher. And 73% of the participants had received no prior local therapy for prostate cancer. So let's get this straight. The index patient was a fit, white man with high-volume, high-grade disease with no previous treatment. Now, it is important to remember this when we consider how much we can extrapolate from the current study. The headline result was that the median overall survival was 13.6 months longer in the combination arm with upfront chemotherapy compared to ADT alone. In absolute numbers, this was 58 months in the combination arm and 44 month median survival in the ADT alone arm. And this gave a hazard ratio for death of 0.61. It was first presented at ASCO in 2014. And there was a lot of discussion about the delay to final publication. We chatted to Chris about why this was the case. When you do a industry-sponsored study, they've got millions of dollars behind it and they've got uh, the CROs going into all of the groups and uh, the sites doing the studies and helping clean the database. So this was done on a basically a uh, government cooperative group budget with some limited resources and we had to go back to the sites and update the data. So we were basically uh, found in the interim analysis that it was so positive and the results were so strong that we, it was believable and trustworthy. We actually pressure tested in many different ways. But then basically the study wasn't completed so we then had to go and backtrack and uh, clean the database so that we could be suitable for publication. So it was basically interim analysis, the results are positive and we just weren't uh, up to date with the database per closure that we had uh, a delay in getting all the data updated and then the statisticians finding the time to complete the work. One of the key talking points that has emerged from the chartered data has been the distinction between high volume and low volume disease. In high volume disease, the median overall survival was 17 months longer in the combination group than in the ADT alone group, being 49 months versus 32 months with a hazard ratio for death of 0.6. In the low volume group, Median survival at the time of the analysis had not been reached, but still the hazard ratio for death was around 0.6. Chris, why was the distinction between volume of disease made? The initial phase of the study, we, we opened the study up when it was the SWOG intermittent versus continuous metastatic study was ongoing. So there was a competing study within the cooperative groups. And the arrangement was the 
patients who needed the most intense therapy we thought were probably going to be the high volume. So we designed it around high volume and we came up with a definition for high volume that was uh, one that we felt would avoid misclassification. So clearly visceral metastasis is bad, so that was an easy one. Um, more bony metastases is bad, but what is more? And recognising technician bone scans, there's a lot of false positivity and misreads around DJD. So we recognise three or less you do well in the number of bony metastases from an MD Anderson data set. Chris makes a really key point here, and it's got to do with the study design. It was initially set up not to clash with the SWOG intermittent versus continuous deprivation trial. Therefore, they decided to go for the money and enrol only the high-volume patients. It was powered such that there would be 568 patients required. After completion of enrolment in the SWOG trial, they were able to amend this trial in July 2008 to include patients with low-volume disease, but the sample size had to be increased to 600 patients. Then, in December 2011, the third and final change to the study design was made. The number of patients to be included was increased to 780, and this reflected the new data documenting an increase in median overall survival in men receiving ADT. Therefore, subgroup analysis was performed to separate out different follow-up and expected median survivals, as Chris outlined for us. So we wrote the statistics around the expected outcomes for high volume and low volume, with pre-specified uh, what we thought the survivors were, and it turns out we were very correct in the long term. They, our numbers were within a month of the projections, and that allowed us to work out how many patients and the expected time for follow-up. The thing that happened, though, is that we accrued more high-volume patients, and we had greater events in the high-volume patients, as we expected, and so the interim and outlook was driven by the high-volume patients. So is this difference between high and low-volume real? or just not enough follow-up yet? There is a difference between high volume and low volume. Low volume patients have a better natural history. Throughout all the studies over the years, we've shown that patients who have a lower burden of disease have a median time to, to an overall survival, median overall survival of uh, more than six years, or more than five years, maybe six or seven. Whereas those who have a high burden of disease, it's about three years. So it's clear that they have a different natural history when treated with ADT alone. And could it be that they are just a more AR-dependent disease and may not need chemotherapy? But, or is it just that we needed longer-term follow-up for them? And what I can just let the team and the audience know is we are going to analyse and present the longer-term follow-up patients of the low-volume patients and aim to present that uh, hopefully at the ESMO meeting at 2016 in Copenhagen. So stay tuned. Well, we can't wait. I think this really will be one of the great reveals in modern urology. So let's uh, switch gears, Joseph, to the secondary outcomes of the chartered Mm -hmm. trial. The median time to clinical progression, which I'll point out includes symptomatic, radiologic imaging or clinical deterioration, was 33 months with combination therapy as compared to 20 months with ADT alone. And again, that magical hazard ratio of 0.6. The proportion of patients who had a decrease in PSA level to less than 0.2 nanograms per mil at 12 months was 28% of the combination group as compared with 17% in the ADT group. The median time to castrate resistant prostate cancer was 20 months with combination therapy as compared with only 12 months with ADT alone. And again, the hazard ratio for upfront chemotherapy was again that magical 0.6. Finally, toxicity associated with docetaxel 
This was around 5% having a grade 3 or higher adverse event. The breakdown of this was 6% having febrile neutropenia, 2% had grade 3 or 4 infections with neutropenia, but I think overall docetaxel was well tolerated with 86% of the 390 patients in the combination group who started the assigned therapy completed six cycles of docetaxel. So why does it work? There is this hypothesis that there are a subpopulation of prostate cancer cells that may be AR negative from the initial diagnosis and therefore they're going to be resistant to ADT right from the beginning. And this is the rationale for the study of, and why it was done that we wanted to combine docetaxel with ADT in men with hormone-naive metastatic prostate cancer. But there are alternative explanations and one of them is when you look at the rate of adverse events. The incidence of neutropenic fever in TAX327 was only 2.7%, remembering these are patients with castrate-resistant disease, whereas the incidence in all three of the metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer studies, and we're talking Chartered, Stampede and GTO, they range from 6 to 12%, so they're at least twice as much. So these findings may suggest different docetaxel exposure in metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer as compared to hormone-sensitive disease. And in fact, there has been a study that showed that the clearance of docetaxel is affected by castration-resistant status. In this study, the clearance of docetaxel was increased by 100% in castrated as compared to non-castrated men. Therefore, in hormone-sensitive cancers, men are going to have double the exposure or a significantly higher area under the curve. So let's look at these other trials. The magnitude of the overall survival in the Chartered and Stampede trials is remarkable. 13.6 months for Chartered and 15 months in the metastatic population for Stampede. If we do just take a quick sneak peek at the Stampede trial, there was 1,184 patients with locally advanced and metastatic disease that received ADT alone and 592 in their combination therapy arm. And if we take a quick look at the locally advanced non-metastatic patients, these did have an increase in their median overall survival, and that was increased by 10 months, from 67 to 77 months. And in patients with metastatic disease, the median overall survival was improved by a whopping 22 months, from 43 to 65 months. A meta-analysis in Lancet Oncology 2015 of the available data from all three trials revealed a robust 9% absolute overall survival benefit at four years by the use of upfront docetaxel in addition to the ADT in men with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. So now after these large trials, we have sort of sitting out like a shag on a rock the GTUG15 trial, otherwise known as the French genitourinary tumour group trial. And why was this negative? It was a randomised study involving 380 patients, similar in design to the current study. It did not detect longer overall survival with combination therapy. Median overall survival was longer than charted, 54.2 months with ADT alone. Time to progression was longer, the number of prostate cancer deaths was smaller, and the number of treatment-related deaths was larger, 4 of 195 patients, with early docetaxel therapy than with ADT alone. Chris's take on the GTUG study. The GTUG group did a fantastic job in their updated analysis where they updated their survival but also reclassified patients in exactly the same way as the charted study, and that's a European urology paper by Gwinnell Gravis earlier this year. And we see that the, high, the low volume patients had not a hint or a whiff of benefit from early dose of taxol, and the 
high volume patients actually with longer follow-up actually went in the same direction as the stampede and the charted study. Um, earlier events, poorer outcomes, and maybe uh, the hazard ratio was more in favour of early docetaxel, but it was underpowered. And one of the questions is why was the GTUG study negative and the chance charted and the stampede positive? My speculation is that uh, they had um, accrued all their patients before the approval of the new agents for CRPC. So once the patient got ADT and docetaxel, they had very little access to the other agents, whereas those who had ADT plus alone were able to get docetaxel. So the ADT docetaxel patients basically had very little therapy for CRPC, and that plays out in what their uh, therapies were listed for CRPC. So I think that's one of the key differences. So can it all be explained by the inclusion of a different metastatic patient population and access to new second-line treatments? Well, it's a good hypothesis, but I'm not sure we'll ever find the answer to it. Despite the excellent trial design of Chartered, there were some limitations. The thorny question of low-volume disease hasn't been resolved. All trials were in newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer, thus conclusions regarding the use of docetaxel in men previously treated for local disease are also limited. To date, the recommendation of docetaxel plus ADT thus reflects the setting of newly diagnosed metastatic disease only. Finally, one further criticism has been that only 62% of men in the standard care arm had received chemotherapy. So does chemotherapy need to be given up front, or do you just need to get it in? We asked Chris what he thought of this criticism. We haven't finished. A lot of those patients are still on therapy for their CRPC with their abiraterone or their enzalutamide, and they haven't had docetaxel yet. And even in the early analysis, 75% of the patients who'd actually progressed to CRPC actually had got docetaxel. In, that was associated with the survival data that we've presented. 75% of those who'd actually candidates for therapy for CRPC had, because they'd progressed had got docetaxel. And people are using the denominator of the total patients, but that's not the correct denominator because it's only those who progressed. And people, um, I think we're hearing key opinion leaders focus on the total population as the denominator, and I think misrepresented the uh, truth in, in that regard. So Chris, you would be well aware that the new ESMO and European Urology Guidelines have recently been published. And to quote precisely from them, androgen deprivation therapy plus docetaxel is recommended as first-line treatment of metastatic hormone-naive disease in men fit enough for chemotherapy. Specifically, the guidelines do not distinguish between low and high-volume disease. If we presume all the events are being driven by the high-volume patients, as they are, and it could be, and I think it's an unknown entity as to whether the low-volume patients do get the benefit, and some people would look at it and say, well, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, because when we look at the total totality of the data in Stampede and the early analysis of the chart, it looks like there might be a benefit. So I think there's a, a desire to always do good work and not deny patients the therapy. So I think there's a benefit of the doubt uh, proposition for why we should give it to the low-volume patients, but we need to analyse it more closely. So you can be a lumper and put everything into one entity, or you could be a splitter. And I think the issue is that we in the U US, the charter design, have actually opted to be a bit of a splitter, and we'll see if that gives us more information over time, as we said, at the ESMO meeting, whereas the MRC have decided to 
be more inclusive in their approach, and I think that's led to the guidelines. Given the recent explosion of PSMA PET CT, particularly in Australia and Germany, where we're now finding metastatic disease where previously we did not, this has led to stage migration across the board. And also, the distinction between low-volume and high-volume disease is no longer as clear-cut as it was in the past. Does this mean, Chris, that we have to rethink everything about the chemotherapy trials and the entrance criteria for such trials going forward? I think uh, conventional imaging alone, because if we, if the high-volume and low-volume story does plan out, um, and let's just say low-volume is actually code for the new world entity of oligometastatic disease... Yeah. So I think uh, we need to harmonise our definitions of what oligometastatic versus low volume is, and I, I think it's the same. Um, but I think we need to be careful, and there will be stage migration. And my biggest concern is we will migrate a patient from M0 where, who are potentially cured with hormones plus radiation therapy, and uh, people will notice a 1.2 centimetre retroperitoneal lymph node that's PSMA positive, who we would have treated with ADT plus radiation with curative intent and possibly could have, because those patients could possibly be managed with systemic therapy and cured, and the local disease managed better and cured with the combined modality. So I th I'm very concerned that we may be uh, withholding therapy, and my approach to the low volume oligo metastatic is actually to treat the primary with local therapy, and if it's an isolated bony metastasis, radiate that and give hormonal therapy and do that more in preference to giving chemotherapy in all honesty. I feel like there's a potential that we may pull off the throttle when we should actually be doubling down on these patients. What a great point, Chris. I also believe we're curing people with ADT. It would help explain the difference in survival we're seeing in the radiation trials of six months versus three years of adjuvant ADT. Now, I agree that radiosensitization with ADT is very important, but after the six-month time point, that extra two and a half years you think must be contributing to curing micrometastatic disease, or at the very least, really knocking it on the head. So Chartered has generated a lot of discussion. So we asked Chris, what were one or two of the feedback issues since the study was published? A lot of people basically yawned for 10 years when we did this study. Um, they said, it's boring and it's not going to be positive, why are you doing it? And uh, so it was, but a, a lot of people, once they saw the data, they said, that's so strong, we can actually believe it and we'll get behind it, even though we didn't expect it. So that was the one thing, was clearly unexpected. The other notion is that a lot of people said, were saying for 10 years during the study, we don't see metastatic prostate cancer. And my point was, well, you're not working at the VA hospitals, you're not working in the county hospitals, you're seeing the guy who's, uh, slowly got a rising PSA and after their local therapies, but not that 10,000 patients in the United States who present with de novo metastatic prostate cancer. Fast forward 10 years, everyone's saying, where were these patients beforehand? And the reason being is we didn't have anything for them, but now we have something for them. People are saying, these patients are coming out of the woodwork. And Enzermet, for example, is accruing like gangbusters at about five, 50 patients a month. Uh, that's the study of enzalutamide with or without, so ADT with or without enzalutamide, and you're stratified by whether the physician and patients think they should get docetaxel. The ANZUP crew working with the University of Sydney Clinical Trials Centre 
Uh, it's been a brilliant enterprise and it's been fantastic collaborating with the team. And when we recognise that we've actually pulled a global network together between Ireland, the United Kingdom, Canada, Dana-Farber and hopefully uh, Indiana University and all of Australia, all rowing in the same direction, all accruing to the same study as a investigator-sponsored trial is spectacular and we will have accrued 1,100 patients probably by about March or April next year. Okay, Chris, if you could do the study again, what would you do differently? So I've been extremely fortunate to have been uh, the front man for ECOG in running this and if I had my time over again and I had enough finances to do it, I would have powered both the high volume and the low volume enough so that as a prospective uh, well-powered subset, as opposed to we prospectively define them, but that we didn't power the subsets for an outcome. So that would be the one thing we could, uh, I would have liked to have done in, in retrospect. Um, the other thing that's fantastic that I think is it's going to be the gift that keeps on giving uh, because we've got we're getting the uh, gene expression profiling from as many patients as possible, looking for markers of resistance. We're doing a GWAS analysis on all of the patients. We're doing serum profiling at multiple different points so we can look at markers of bone turnover, inflammation, um, and a number, number of other things that could try and find biomarkers. I know what I would have done differently. Um, and updated the case report form to have a bit more granularity about the patients. There are a couple of things that we can't we didn't capture in the case report form that would, would allow us to do better secondary analyses, but that's what we don't have in there. So what were they? Things like uh, baseline alkaline phosphatase, but we should be able to do that off the blood that we've got off baseline of these patients, looking at bone alkaline phosphatase. We captured high volume, low volume, and the way the case report form was defined, we actually don't know quite yet who actually had lymph node only versus three or less bony metastases to carve out the lymph node only group. So there are a couple of refinements like that I would have liked to have done. Well, I reckon you've nailed the key index patient. A fit 65-year-old de novo metastatic disease with good renal function. Who would you be concerned that this data would be interpreted for? In all honesty, a push in the envelope a little bit too much on a frail 72-year-old, 78-year-old who possibly could have benefited from it but wasn't chemo-fit and maybe had low volume disease and could have done just well with hormones alone. So that's where I, where I think the patient in front of you, you make a clinical judgment. If you know their natural ex expectancy is many, many months with uh, 80, and years with ADT alone, and they don't need the docetaxel, uh, if you think they're going to die of something else in the meantime, withhold the docetaxel. Yeah. But a 78 year old who's like a fit farmer from Wagga, who's got eight bony metastases, and is running around chasing the cows or the sheep, why not give him chemotherapy? Because he's not going to die of his other disease, he's going to die of his prostate cancer. So there we have it. The take-home message is that there is a 13.6-month improvement in overall survival with upfront docetaxel, which is unprecedented. There is a 39% reduced risk of dying. It also offered better cancer control with a longer time to the development of castration resistance a higher rate of decrease of the PSA level to less than 0.2 nanograms per mil at 12 months, as well as a lower number of prostate cancer-related deaths. So I just wonder, if you give ADT and docetaxel up front in a patient with high-volume disease, you debulk the AR-positive and the AR-negative disease and potentially make them 
more likely to be sensitive to subsequent therapies because you've got rid of the AR negative clones is speculation on my behalf, my behalf. and we're trying to do some um, charter database mining to see if that's true and it's all speculation but that's why we do research to try and find the answers to these things. Thanks to Chris who was very generous with his time and comments and thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next podcast where once again we chat to the author of one of the biggest papers in urology all feedback to talkingurology at gmail.com This has been Talking Urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk, a podcast series supported by Ipsen.